Do you all remember when uh, they were all talking about things that were too big to fail? Too big to fail. The banks were too big to fail. You know, what they meant by that is that they were so big that if they went down, it would affect so many people's lives negatively that uh, they had to be buoyed up, right? Well, I don't know about too big to fail, but I do know that some things are too big to grasp. Too big to grasp all at once. You just can't do it. There are just some things that we cannot get our minds around. We can't get our hearts around. We hear them, we understand the words, you know, our heads can go up and down, but nothing really sinks in, nothing changes, nothing really assimilates. You know, lately I've been hearing the word and the number trillion being thrown about like candy lately. A trillion dollars going here, a trillion dollars going there. Have you ever thought about what a trillion really is? A trillion, okay, it's a thousand billion. And what does that do for your head, right? You know, I heard something that, that kind of brought it all together. If you were going to count your money and you had $1,000 and you started counting your $1,000, one number each second, how long would it take you to get to 1000 do you think? It's about 17 minutes it would take you to count to 1000 one number a second. Now, if you were going to count to a million, how long would that take you to count to a million? Any, any ideas here? About 17 days. Each second, you know, 60 seconds, 60 seconds per minute, 60 minutes per hour, 12 hours, you know, 24 hours. That's how long it would be, about 17 days. Now, how long do you think it would take you to count to a billion? Same deal. About 32 years to count to a billion. And if you wanted to count to a trillion, how long do you think that would take you? Are you ready? 32,000 years to count to a trillion. See, that's a number that's too big to grasp. We can't even imagine numbers like that. We throw them around, and I guess the money's being spent, but they're exponential. They just, they just grow. We can't really get our minds around numbers that big. Some things are just too big to grasp. Some things are too alien in our thinking. They completely contradict our worldview. And we can't get our arms around those either. Some things are just so paradoxical. So many of the sayings of Jesus are complete paradox, and they're designed that way. They're too big to grasp. We're not even supposed to grasp some of them. We're supposed to experience them. But when something is too big to grasp, it's just too big, it's too alien in its point of view, it contradicts our worldview, whatever, it's going to take some time for us to be able to make these concepts useful, to make this experience useful. Jesus' kingdom is like this. The idea of Jesus' kingdom is so different than our normal way of approaching life that we can't get it all at once. We can understand the words, but not the reality of what it actually means to live in kingdom. I remember when I first started studying in this direction, studying Jesus from a, from a Hebrew point of view and trying to get my head around these completely different concepts from east to west, from ancient to modern and all of these, I remember I got really excited about some of the things that I was learning and the concepts that I was starting to, to get in my brain. But I noticed that I kept falling back onto old thinking and old patterns over and over and over again. No matter what I thought that I had moved forward intellectually, as I was putting into practice, I was falling back 
Back to a legal mindset. Back to that performance for approval mindset. Back to a contingent love. Not an unconditional love, but one that was always contingent on something. I would keep falling back into those. And how did I know I was falling back? Because my emotions were all over the place. I was getting all tweaked, all upset. I couldn't keep a thread going. The, the image that came to mind is that, have you ever seen a, a mother, maybe you as mothers, have gone to the beach with your little toddler, and you sit cross-legged on the dry sand, and the little, per, little person runs out, when the waves are back, runs out into the wet sand, and as soon as those waves come in, runs back into your lap again to be safe? That's what I felt like I was doing. I was making these forays out into this intellectual landscape, but as soon as something was looking like it was coming at me, I'd run back to my old concepts, the ones that felt safe, the ones that felt like some how it was being protected. Kingdom is like that. It's just too big to grasp all at once. The shape of the journey to kingdom that is Jesus' way, that we're trying to emulate, that we're trying to learn how to follow, is also too big to grasp, too alien in its concept. This idea of having to descend before we can ascend, to have to deconstruct and let go of everything that we think we know and everything we think we believe, Jesus calls it dying to self, picking up your cross daily and following, selling everything that you have, giving it away, and then following, letting go of all of these things, the cultural things, the, the, the legal things, letting them go is so difficult for us. It takes time. It takes soaking in the new reality before it can penetrate, before it can permeate before it becomes something. It's so counterintuitive, and it's frightening, let's face it. To let go of these things that have been our security blankets for so long, it's frightening to let go of. And so like anything that you learn that requires what they call procedural memory, we like to call it muscle memory, but procedural memory, anything that you learn that's going to take time to actually sink in, like riding a bike, playing a musical instrument, learning a second language. It just takes immersion, and it takes time. It takes the dedication of showing up day after day and doing the difficult thing until it becomes part of you. This is what it's all about. It's too big to grasp all at once. The Lord's Prayer that we talked about last week is not a prayer to just simply be recited. We talked about that. We talked about how Jesus was trying to get us to understand the nature of prayer. It's a prayer that we're supposed to live out, not speak out. And it's a prayer that gives us the shape of the journey, all just in those five lines. Let's take a look at it again. If you have your, uh, your inserts, you can take a look, or I'm sure Brandon already has them up on the screen. But we talked about the five lines. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. But when we broke that down... Making God's name holy, God's Shem in Aramaic, which means essence, it means character, it means reputation, it means deepest purpose. That is really what that hallowed name is. And to hallow something, to make it holy, is to set it apart, to set it aside, to clear a space for it. And this is what that first line is all about. Our Father who dwells in that complete oneness that we can't see in our daily lives, we're going to clear a space for you, for your character, for your essence, for your deepest purpose, for your vision and way of seeing life internally, inside, so that we can 
Bring your kingdom to earth. Bring your will into our lives to actually manifest it here and now in our lives. We're going to clear that space so that we can match our desire to your desire. We're not going to try to steamroller over it or let your will steamroller ours. We're simply going to match our desires. What is important to you becomes important to us. When we clear out all that stuff that we thought we knew, then we can apprehend a new reality and we can let that be our new reality. And when our reality is the same as God's reality, then everything that we need this day, the bread of our need this day is provided. But it's provided this day. It's provided here and now. The only place we'll ever access God is right here and right now. Not in our heads, not imagining past or future or any abstract thought, but right here and now in the connection. That's where the bread comes. And the lachma of the bread is all the provision, spiritual, psychological, emotional, physical, everything that we will need. When we have cleared a space, when we have matched our desire to God's, becomes apparent to us. We realize that it's already here when we do that. But then there are things that are still pulling us back, right? That little kid running out to the surf and then coming back again. When we forgive our debts, when we become free of those debts, when we become free of the traumas and the hurts from the past, then we are released then we can truly be here and now. Without coloration, we can see what's right in front of us without emotional distortion, if you will. If you will. And then if we don't desert, divert from that path, if we are delivered from evil, delivered from the distractions that will tend to pull us off, then we can persevere. Then we can continue to live in kingdom. This is the Lord's Prayer. This is the way that it renders if we go back into the original understanding. Five steps of action. This is the shape of the journey to kingdom. It starts with the descent. It starts with the clearing out. It starts with letting everything go, and it builds up from there. If you know anything about Jewish mindset, if you know anything about the Jews, you know that they're all about action. Not much for abstract thought when it comes to spirituality. Even their nouns are verbs that were changed into nouns. Their language reflects the mindset. Faith to a Jew is action. It's what you do and are able to do in the presence of doubt, not the illusion of mental certainty. That's not faith. Jesus is trying to teach us to see things differently, to see how we can completely move into new space, see things differently, everything Law, love, prayer, life, everything that we experience, to see it through God's eyes, which changes everything. And as he's doing this teaching, it's almost as if the Pharisees are a set piece. It's almost as if they were written into the part to, to provide the contrast in all these areas, just as Jesus needed. It's almost like they're tools, because they're all, I have such an opposite view of everything that Jesus is trying to get across. Kind of made to order contrast there. They looked at law absolutely literally. To follow the law literally was how they gained approval from God. It's how they gained approval from their fellow men and women, their society, their, their culture. They looked at love as contingent. If you follow the law, if you did these things of righteousness, then you were approved, then you were loved. And the Pharisees used prayer. And also charitable giving, alms, and fasting, 
as a way to gain personal advantage. And this is what Jesus is pushing back hard against in chapter 6. They used everything to try to change the circumstances to their own advantage. They made a show of everything. They let everyone know exactly what they were doing at all times to exert more power over the people. But even the people on the margins, the people who didn't have any power, and us now, don't we use prayer in the same way? Not in the same way, but for the same purpose. We use prayer to try to gain a personal advantage, don't we? We use prayer to try to change our circumstances, to seek some kind of advantage. I remember there was a sign that my mom had uh, over the fireplace, and it was, prayer changes things. And it's a beautiful sentiment. But is that really what prayer is primarily about? Is primarily prayer about changing things? Now, maybe it does. And I'll tell you, there's certainly some times that prayer seems to change things. So I'm not going to cast any aspersions about, about that. But as soon as you bring such an agenda into your prayer, the agenda of changing something specific, going for a specific outcome, going for a personal advantage, it changes the nature of the prayer itself because now it's focused on that outcome, right? But at the same time that it changes the nature of the prayer, it leaves us unchanged. We don't change because we're still praying out of that fear. We're praying for that particular outcome. And any prayer that doesn't change us doesn't transform us into a closer image of God, doesn't grow us, is not being prayed in Jesus' shem, in his name, in his character and essence. Because if any prayer is prayed for personal advantage, it's still prayed in fear. It's not prayed in love in the way that Jesus prayed. Think about the way Jesus prayed. Think about the Lord's Prayer that we just went through. That's not prayed for personal advantage. It's prayed for us to be able to become one with the ultimate reality of our lives. Think about John 17, the great prayer of Jesus during the Last Supper. The whole chapter, solid red ink, if you've got one of those kind of Bibles, is Jesus praying the entire chapter. And what's he praying for? He's praying for oneness. Oneness between every one of us and him. Oneness between us and the Father, that we might all be one as he and the Father are one. Not for personal advantage. And he goes from there to Gethsemane, and what does he pray there? He does pray, if there's any way that I don't have to go through this, but then what does he circle back around? Not my will, but yours be done. Back to oneness. Back to matching his desire to God's desire. Back to just allowing the prayer to change him Jesus is always praying for personal transformation, not personal advantage. Obviously and ironically, the transformation is the advantage that we seek, but we don't always see it that way in our fear, now do we? We want something absolutely specific, rather. The Jews had a saying that any prayer that was not prayed for all of Israel was no prayer at all. In a collective society like the Jews were in the first century, Everything was about the entire community. It wasn't about the individual. The individual lived to serve the community, not the other way around. And so prayer would be understood that way, as a communal affair, 
something that would float all boats higher, all boats higher. There's a wonderful proverb that the Chinese have. That's to, uh, to suffer yourself when all under heaven suffer and to enjoy only when all under heaven enjoy. Once again, that idea of the communality, that how in the world can we celebrate a personal advantage, especially if it comes out of the hide of someone else around us? And how can we enjoy the fruits of anything if so many else are suffering? This idea of communality. John Donne's poem, remember the famous line, for whom the, the bell tolls? That comes out of the, the medieval practice of, of church bells being rung when somebody died. And they would have a distinctive ring because the, someone would go up and, and mute half the clapper by putting a leather thong around it. So it would ring hard and it would ring soft in alternate. And they knew somebody died. And then, of course, you had to find out, well, who died, right? But John Donne says, you know, any man's death diminishes me because I am connected to, to man, all mankind. So never send for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. The idea that we are all connected. The prayer should reflect that connection. If we are being changed, if we are growing into who the Father is, then we realize that that is the basic reality of our lives. This oneness, this connection. Praying in Jesus' name, praying in Jesus' Shem, praying in Jesus' character creates shalom. Shalom was understood as the greatest amount of health and wealth and prosperity and connection that is possible, but it's for everyone, not for one person at the expense of another. It's everyone experiencing that peace. Praying for personal advantage, if we're praying for just that, first of all is assuming that God is withholding something, something that we need, until we perform correctly, right? Until we pray correctly. Now God is going to suddenly shower us what he was withholding before. But the father says to the elder brother of the prodigal, remember, everything that I have is already yours. Why do you want to deny your brother this party? Why do you want to deny your brother, your brother re-entrance into this oneness of this family? Because you think that somehow it slights you? Everything I have is already yours. There's nothing more that I can give you. What part of everything don't you understand? Everything the Father has is already here. It's already now. The Lord's Prayer is this way of living in realization of this abundance, in realization that nothing has been withheld, in realization that the Father has already showered us with everything that we need. How do we get that to come home to us? How does Jesus teach this in such a way that we can begin to grasp something that can't be grasped all at once? There's a clue in hermeneutics, and if you're not familiar with that word, it's the art and science of uh, textual interpretation, especially biblical interpretation. That's proximity of two texts points to meaning. If something is close together, if something is side by side in the text, the relatedness of those two is what's at issue. They are related in some way that is going to bring meaning. We need to pay attention to the things that are side by side, the things that are connected in this way. Right after the Lord's Prayer, right after he delivers those five lines, Jesus makes a shocking statement about forgiveness. 
Now, forgiveness is mentioned, obviously, in the Lord's Prayer, right? It's right there. Forgive us our debts, just as we forgive our debtors. And if we take out the doxology at the end, and we mentioned this before, that the earliest texts and manuscripts of the Bible don't have, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And many of the new translations will put it in brackets because it's only in later translations. But if you take that out, and so the last line is, do not let us enter into temptation. Deliver us from evil. And then you go right into this next line. You're going to see the connection between the two. Let's look at Matthew 18. Nope, I'm sorry, Matthew 6, starting at verse 14. For if you, for, if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your heavenly Father will not forgive your transgressions. What is going on here? This for, at the very beginning of it, is connecting it to the previous material at verse 13. Don't let us enter into temptation. Deliver us from evil. And then he says, for if you forgive. So that for is giving us a connection between the two, relating it to the material before. It's like a therefore. You want to be delivered from evil. You want to be delivered from distraction. Uh, The way we paraphrased it, deliver us from the inability to become complete and one with you and with each other. So, therefore, or in order for that to happen, is kind of where this is being introduced. Then, forgive your brother and your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't, it won't. He won't. So, now is forgiveness suddenly contingent? Is forgiveness suddenly conditional? God is withholding forgiveness until we perform rightly? Is that what it's... That's what the text says... But is that what is meant here? Because if so, then this just refuted everything that I just told you. Right? (laughs) Never mind anything I said before. No, but think about it. It's also refuting everything that Jesus has said as well. So something's got to give. Take a look now at Matthew 18, starting at verse 21. This is where Peter comes up to Jesus and says, How many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus says, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven times. Now, this is an allusion to Genesis 2. I'm sorry, Genesis 4.24. When Cain, remember Cain and Abel? When Cain is sent out and he's afraid that he's going to be killed by anyone who finds him, um, God marks his forehead with some kind of mark and says, anyone who hurts you is going to be avenged seven times. Right, that that, that avenge, vengeance they take on you. Seven is a perfect number. It means um, perfection. It means completion. But then a few generations later, Lamech says, you know, if Cain was avenged seven times, I will be avenged 77-fold or 70 times seven times. And so what was said in the negative in Genesis, now Jesus is saying in the positive. First Peter comes to him, should I forgive seven times? Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. What we're talking about here is forgiveness without limit. It's like saying forever in a day. Perfection times perfection times 10. Forever in a day. You never stop forgiving. This is what Jesus is trying to get across here. There's no contingency for forgiveness. Jesus doesn't lay a contingency on it. He says to love your enemy. They're still your enemy. They haven't done anything to deserve your consideration, but he says to love them anyway. He talks about forgiveness in the same light. 
So what's going on here? How are we supposed to understand this? Now, usually, Eugene Peterson's The Message can come to our rescue. Here, not so much. Take a look at the message. He says, he translates this in a paraphrase. In prayer, there is a connection between what God does and what you do. You can't get forgiveness from God, for instance, without also forgiving others. If you refuse to do your part, you cut yourself off from God's part. I think, even though he's phrasing it so that it still sounds the same, he's leading us in the right direction, especially with that last line. To cut yourself off from God's part. Because that changes the actor in all of this, right? It changes the way that we're going to look at who is doing the cutting off. In Aramaic, forgiveness is the word sevak. Freedom is the word subkana. Both of those words have the same root, the same three consonants that make up the word. In a root and pattern system like Hebrew or Aramaic, the words that share the same roots share the same meaning. In the Hebrew mind, in the Aramaic mind, freedom and forgiveness are basically the same thing. To be forgiven is to be set free. To be set free is to be forgiven. And the whole idea about forgiveness is to be restored, to be brought back to your original condition, the way you were before. Before what? Well, before you were hurt, before you were abused, before you were abandoned, before you were neglected, before you were perpetrated upon in some way, but also before you became ill, before you went into debt, before you lost your job, before you got injured. All of these things create that imbalance to be set free from that imbalance is to be forgiven from that imbalance. That's why debts and transgressions are equally congruent meanings from Luke and to Matthew as they look at the Lord's Prayer. This is what's going on here. Jesus is trying to let us know. Forgiveness has nothing to do with apologies from someone who has hurt you, has nothing to do with making amends, has nothing to do with restitution, has nothing to do with reconciliation. If so, how could you ever forgive someone who has died? How could you forgive someone who was now somewhere in a remote geographic location? We can do this, but we have to tweak the way that we're looking at forgiveness. And forgiveness is one of those things that's also too big to grasp at first. It has nothing to do with the offender at all. It has nothing to do with the perpetrator. Forgiveness does not condone or make excuses for the offending act either. It's important for us to understand these things because they are what trip us up. They are what keep us holding on to that victimhood. And that's exactly what forgiveness is in this mindset. It is the letting go. It is the being set free from our victimhood. It's taking back the power of choice. What is it that finds a victim? It's the choicelessness. A victim doesn't have a choice. Something happens to them. If you hold on to your victimhood, you're holding on your inability to make a choice, and that can be comforting psychologically. I'm not responsible for where I am, how I feel, what has happened to me. To be set free from that, to be forgiven from that, is to take your choice back, to take back the ability to choose a new life. And here's the key. It's up to us to do this. 
It absolutely is up to us. We do this for ourselves or it doesn't get done at all. Because there is no power on earth or in heaven that can force freedom on us. It's not possible. It can't be done. We can allow ourselves to be set free, but no one else can do that for us. I wanted to read a couple of paragraphs. This is from the book I wrote called Daring to Think Again on the same topic. How do I give you the ability to play guitar, to dance, to speak a second language? Such things are not bestowed, but learned through experience. How can I give you love? Love is not given directly. The effect of love's choices are experienced and either begins to identify, and either the beloved begins to identify with the lover or does not. We can almost hear Yeshua saying, I can lead you and your horse to water, but I can't make either of you drink. I can throw the key to your prison cell inside the bars, but I can't make you use it. I can even open the door of your cell, physically pull you out and drop you off on a street corner downtown, but I can't make you free. I can give you all I have to give, save you from certain death, but I can't make you grateful. I can tell you you're forgiven and pardon you, commute your sentence, but I can't assuage the guilt that you feel or make you comfortable in any of your relationships again. I can love you with all that is in me, but I can't make you love me or anyone else in return. I can't do any of these things any more than I can make a suckling infant walk and talk before muscle and synapse are ready. And our Father in Heaven can't either. I was talking to a woman who's going through a very difficult divorce. And she's all torn up about it. You know, she's, she's angry, she's resentful, she still thinks really malicious thoughts <laughs> about her ex-spouse, and she's struggling with this. And we were talking about forgiveness, and she says, I pray to God that he will give me forgiveness for my ex-husband. Problem is, it doesn't work that way, does it? That puts us in a passive position, to pray to God for forgiveness, to pray to God for the setting free of our own emotional state, which is a choice that we need to make and no one can make for us. God never withholds. To pray for God to give you the forgiveness to give to somebody else is presupposing that he's withholding that until you do what? Perform correctly, perform rightly? God never withholds anything. God doesn't really forgive, if you think about it. God is forgiveness. God is love. God doesn't do forgiveness or love as a verb. God is those things. And as soon as we approach God, that's what we get. God can't be anything other than what God is. God is love, forgiveness, freedom, deliverance, healing, We're as forgiven as we want to be. We have everything we need to choose that set freeness. Choose to let go of our victimhood. But nobody can do it for us without violating our free will. And God doesn't do that. 
It's our free will. It's our ability to choose. It gives us the ability to love as God loves. It's the only thing that makes us created in God's image. He will not take that away from us. What Jesus has said here in verse 14 and 15 is literally true. Until we forgive, until we choose ourselves to be free, we are not free. We are not forgiven. But it's this Hebrew idiomatic way of expressing that makes God the actor, always the actor, because he is the primary force in the universe. It's their way of speaking. But God is not the actor here. It's us. We are the actor. We cut ourselves off from God's part. We cut ourselves off from God's healing and grace. We do that by our inability, our fear of moving forward, becoming vulnerable again, moving back into relationship again, seeing the perpetrator as another flawed human being who still deserves compassion and grace, just as we do. We do that for ourselves. It's always us, because God has already chosen. He's chosen his part. He's chosen us. And he's done everything that he can do for us. And he keeps on doing it every day. And he's saying, will you simply just pick up what is right in front of you? We're all sitting at a table laden with the greatest feast that you can imagine. And we're praying God for our daily bread. God's saying, I could have had a V8. Some things, though, are just too big to grasp all at once. Love and forgiveness and freedom are like this. To pray for things that are already ours, that are already here, assumes that God withholds until we perform. And to pray to change things to our own advantage leaves us unchanged because we're still praying out of our fear. We're still praying for things that are already ours in the sense that we are looking at life from a point of view of scarcity instead of the abundance that God brings. Jesus' prayer is the shape of the journey to the deepest change and transformation of all the ability to live this kingdom life that Jesus is trying to get us to see. We can't say Jesus' prayer and expect it to change us. But if we live it fully in the way that Jesus has laid out for us and the way that he's modeled it for us, then we're already on the way. Let's pray. Father, you don't shy away from the big things. The biggest things that we could possibly comprehend are what you have for us. Bigger than our lives, bigger than this physical universe. And so you're not surprised that we can't get it all at once. You're not surprised how much resistance we have and how long it sometimes takes us to be able to try something different. So thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for the continued grace as we struggle along. We don't pray to change our circumstances, but we do pray that we'll have a greater and greater sense of your presence right beside us, empowering us every step of the way, letting us know that it's okay to become vulnerable again. It's okay to take that first uncertain step in a direction that we've gotten hurt before to see if this relationship can be different. Help us to do that, Lord. 
Help us to be willing to let go of the things that we think we know because of the hurts that we have sustained to find that there's always something new and different and invigorating in your world that will take us further on. Help us to become people who can do this, Lord. Thank you for your love and your constancy. Never let us forget that we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand.